Hello, and welcome to the Cancer Tech Accelerator podcast. I'm your host, Katarina, as well as the program manager. I'm joined today by my co-host and our entrepreneur in residence, Nirmesh, as well as Dalik, the co-founder and CEO of Parabio. Dalik started off at the University of Waterloo, where he studied nanotechnology engineering. He has since spent time at Stanford School of Medicine, Singularity University, Merrick, and founded other companies on his incredible journey to Parabio. Thank you for joining us today, guys. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Um, so I guess just to get us started on um, your journey and everything, could you give us a little bit of insight on how Parabio came about and maybe kind of a, a little bit of an origin story from your perspective? Yeah, so uh, Parabio started uh, after I was working in industry. So this wasn't an academic spin out. Uh, and what was interesting about that is even though I've worked more in small pharma and, uh, and just pharma in general before, before starting Parabio, I was actually at a fintech company, uh, ClearBank. So that's a bit of an unusual turn of events uh, to go from basically biotech to fintech and then back to biotech to start a company. Um, but it was also quite interesting the way that started because having worked previously in pharma and then switching to fintech, it gave me a new kind of perspective on how to build startups very quickly. Uh, this company, ClearBank, it was growing very fast. When I, was jo when I joined, it was around 20 employees. Uh, now it's well over 200 employees. Uh, when I was there, in, I remember in the span of a few months, there was this 5x growth in revenue in, I think, two or three months. So the speed of learning lessons in that industry was much faster. You know, being a venture capital-backed uh, company at the time, it was around the Series A. Now it's well past the Series B. Uh, but uh, that was a very fast learning experience that got me into, uh, you know, the idea of next starting my own company. Um, and because of how fast the company moved, it uh, gave me the ability to learn lessons very quickly, uh, fail fast. And uh, when I was in the company, that's when I came up with the idea of Parabio. I messaged uh, someone I had known uh, for a while, my co-founder, uh, and told him about the idea of recreating the tumor microenvironment as a way of understanding how cancer progresses, uh, because that was an unex or relatively unexplored part when we're talking about clinical diagnostics. Um, so of course there were academics that were looking at the tumor microenvironment. Uh, one of the inspirations of the company was a professor at UC Berkeley, uh, Mina Bissell, who was researching the tumor microenvironment's effects on breast cancer progression. And what we wanted to do is find a way to actually quantify what the tumor and microenvironment means to uh, patient outcomes. Uh, so we basically left jobs in industry to start this. Um, but it was that kind of experience before of uh, being in the industry and actually being in a different industry as well that really helped formulate the idea for what this became because we would take lessons from tech into starting the biotech company. Yeah. So Parabio is analyzing cancer progression, especially how the tumor microenvironment affects that. And we do that using a combination of organ on a chip and computer vision. Uh, so essentially we take patient derived tumor samples. We uh, find ways to track that over time. So we use live cell tracking stains where we can uh, take uh, single cells out of a patient tumor sample, put it into a diet and then put it into whatever architecture uh, we think will recreate core parts of the human tumor. And then we put it into these artificial environments that are meant to mimic uh, certain parts of the human tumor microenvironment. So uh, we take the patient tumor sample, we put it into a hydrogel that has core components of the uh, human extracellular matrix like hyaluronic acid and collagen. 
And then we see how, uh, when we put this into the organ on a chip, which creates physiological conditions like oxygen levels, how the cancer is progressing over time. And then by looking at how the cancer is progressing, we can see if certain drugs are better or worse at containing and killing the tumor. And that's all quantified using uh, 3D live cell microscopy and computer vision, where the computer vision will look at uh, the rate of cancer progression against different treatments and see if uh, from that, uh, that time-lapse image data, whether there are patterns that indicate, yes, this patient is going to respond to this drug, but this patient will not respond to this, uh, this treatment. Um, and then by doing that, we can uh, see the likelihood of response for any particular patient to a handful of treatment options, and then guide an oncologist towards you know, certain treatments that are more likely to work. What you would say some of those key lessons um, coming out of a, a FinTech have been that have really helped you uh, progress or build FairBio? Yeah, uh, well, I think a lot of it comes down to how fast you try a new product in FinTech, figure out what's working and what's not working, and then learn a lesson from that and then just keep iterating. So the iteration cycles are a lot faster in, I mean, honestly, any industry other than biotech, the iteration cycles are faster. And so when you are used to trying to launch a product, having that not quite up to par or something being just a bit off about it, you, uh, you know, figure out what's wrong with the product side, you figure out what's wrong on the customer side, you go back to the drawing board and you try again with something a little different. And oftentimes in biotech, you don't have the luxury of, of doing that, at least in the short time scale. Uh, so just the ability to break down a product completely, restart, and then do it again uh, was a very helpful experience in fintech. Obviously, we don't do it to that extent, having a biotech company now, because there's an actual premise and know-how that's built in. But I mean, even in the process of building PairBio, we've had these quasi-situations of we know that there's a certain part of the product that's just not working and we just have to go to that minimum viable product, break it down, figure out what uh, the, uh, the thing that a customer really needs now instead of having this feature creep of our existing product and then just tear down the product to the degree that we can fulfill only that need and make it more reliable as a product. Uh, so I, th I think, uh, yeah, our product reliability and what we would call the minimum viable product uh, has improved a lot by using that tech style of thinking and applying it to biotech. On, on the jump you made from industry, from the fintech to um, Pair Bio itself, at what point did you realize that this is it? This is where you're gonna you're gonna make the jump. Where where did you draw the line saying I have enough activation energy now to make that leap? Yeah, um, that's a that was a tough one because. That was in the middle of the company growing at this crazy revenue growth. Um, so that was a tough call because it was kind of obvious at that point that the stock options in the company would be worth quite a bit. Uh, so basically it came to the point where I had to believe in the company that I was starting enough to say that it's worth leaving uh, another growing company for. Um, and I think for us, one of the major things is we had some interest from pharma companies and we knew that to deliver anything to pharma, we would actually have to be full-time and uh, you know, uh, deliver on a project. Before that, we were doing small bits of R&D where we had a few vendors supplying us with some reagents and some hardware uh, to just you know, play around with the product and prototype, maybe get a little bit of IP together enough for something like a provisional patent. It's very small things um, that 
we could do part-time. That's what we did. Uh, but the second there was money on the table from a pharma company, we knew that we had to actually uh, take this very seriously and commit full-time to it. Uh, and there was a transition period as well where I was actually doing the other job full-time and pair bio full-time uh, because uh, they needed someone to replace me. And I think it was a span of six weeks where I was doing two full-time jobs. So, uh, yeah. Nice. That's a, that's a very difficult position to be in, but also very fun. Um, what would you say the most difficult part of when you were starting and making that decision, obviously, and shifting initially when you were working, I suppose, on your full-time job, as well as this project, uh, before you started getting those pharma orders, what would you say was the kind of commitment and how did you integrate that into your day-to-day -day life? Yeah, uh, so I think my specific roles were a bit easier when it comes to part-time work because I knew a bit more about software and hardware, whereas my co-founder knew more about biology and chemistry. Um, I mean, so we both worked in biotech before, but I just had a slightly different background applied to biotech. Um, and so I think my set of roles were easier. Um, so I think with something like software, for example, obviously you can work on software anywhere, anytime. And so it was much easier to uh, have the full-time work during the day at my job. And then at nights or on weekends to work on the, uh, the software side of things. And likewise with hardware, I would just order things to my house and try them out. Um, I th yeah, and then, and then there was things like figuring out IP, provisional patents, things like that, where a lot of that stuff could be done from home at different times at off hours. Uh, but I think probably one of the harder things to do uh, with a full-time job is business development because you're forced to stay on regular working hours, but you have a full-time job on regular working hours. So that's the probably the hardest part to weave in because yeah, you just have to find some time where you can take a little bit of just an hour off of your regular job to take a call. Um, uh, so I think that's the hardest thing to accommodate. And with, I guess, that business development element, did that come quite naturally and organically to you guys? Or was there kind of a learning curve? How was it, um, I guess, going into that? Yeah, so I think before I worked at this FinTech company, I would, whenever doing anything related to a pharma company, I would always count on a warm introduction to you know, set up a study or set up a collaboration. Uh, and actually working at this FinTech company, I realized how good cold emailing was uh, especially when you do it in volume in a funnel. Uh, and that was something I was never competent in doing, like just sending cold emails to a pharma person. But honestly, I tried the same strategy that the FinTech company was using myself on the pharma side. Uh, and even though the success rate is quite low, if you have a big enough volume of deals that you try to reach out to, some of them end up working. Uh, so, you know, if you cold email a hundred people, the chance of something working is pretty good. Uh, the success rate is not great, but it works. And I think, especially when starting a company, you just need one person or one company to say that this looks good. They're interested, right? Um, so uh, yeah, I, I think that kind of approach worked well um, in terms of business development. Nice. Did you get any uh, weird or interesting responses when you're doing the cold emailing? Uh, for the pharma business development, luckily yeah. no, but I have seen <laughs> that on the FinTech side where you get some, strange responses uh yeah i think uh, yeah on the pharma side the most likely response is just no is, response is just no response something our, our listeners might want to hear about is 
uh, what was your eureka moment for Pear Bio, or was there a eureka moment? So I think the eureka moment was built over years, actually, uh, because I, I mean, I've read papers on the tumor microenvironments for so many years before actually doing this from different professors, different labs. Uh, and I always knew the tumor microenvironment was important. So I remember uh, reading papers on hyaluronic acid before specifically and how that affects cancer progression. And the ideas kept accumulating. And at some point I realized that, well, this is a big problem uh, that people aren't solving in the sense that uh, there's lots of ways to personalize cancer treatment. A lot of it is genomic um, or proteomic based. Uh, there should be some other modalities, right? And essentially after lots of buildup, eventually certain ideas from different fields came together. Like, can we put organ on a chip into this? Can we put computer vision into this? And I think it was just that long accumulation of different ideas finally coming together to say, oh, uh, if you combine these things in the correct way, this is a new product right there. Um, and I think at, and uh, I think after five years or so of being involved in cancer in some one way or another, that's when this happened. Off the back of that, with, um, I guess, some founders, especially within those who are uh, perhaps more in the research space, there is a tendency to perhaps plan to death um, to the point where you never actually get started. Um, so what would you say would be a piece of advice to anyone who is kind of looking at um, getting started? Maybe they're looking at the market, maybe they're looking at a business plan, maybe they're trying to figure out who their competitors are. Um, do you, how do you think um, people should go about that perhaps or what your advice on that is? I think that's, I mean, that's a pretty complicated question because there's so many things you can look at. And it's definitely true that overanalyzing is not helpful. Um, but I think a, a few things is uh, first, uh, knowing an unmet need is pretty important. And I think there's no shortage of them in biotech, especially in cancer. Um, I mean, as long as cancer is not cured, there's some unmet need out there. And as long as a company has not solved it yet, that means it's still open. I mean, you know, companies claim to be solving a problem all the time, but the success rate of any product is quite low in oncology, right? Um, and oftentimes like these companies have to make pipelines of products because uh, your product might work on one cancer, it might not another, right? And I think as long as all cancers are uh, not cured, then there's always a, some kind of unmet need to address, right? Um, and knowing what those are is helpful. Uh, so for example, uh, we, uh, or at least I knew about triple negative breast cancer uh, before uh, starting the pair bio. And I knew that was an unmet need. Uh, and I knew that that could be one kind of avenue to apply this product to because approaches that have been used in specifically triple negative breast cancer has, have not worked well in the past. So I thought, well, if we make something like this and we know that there are certain cancers where genomics is working extremely well, there's no point really trying to compete with these companies. But if we know that there's a historical graveyard in this one cancer, like triple negative breast cancer, and we can prove at an MVP level that our technology does work for this, then we should build something around that, right? And we just kind of built a pipeline that way of, these are cancers that have historically not worked well that we think our technology would work on. Um, so that's the level of analysis we did. But honestly, you can just start with like one unmet need. And for us, that was that was triple negative breast cancer. Um, and I think also, I mean, having a co-founder is important because uh, with any product, uh, it's very hard and time consuming to both talk to customers 
and build the product at the same time. And in our case, we had a product that had multiple moving parts. Uh, so it was easier if, you know, one of us, myself, that is, uh, talked to the customers and did a little bit of product development while the other person did all the product development uh, that remained. Um, and that way, yeah, we can get feedback from customers, figure out the easiest things to work on, and then try to build that. Um, uh, I, I like how you're talking about product development and building the product itself. Um, a lot of early stage biotech companies, especially with academic founders, um, tend to make the mistake of seeing their company as a research project. How do you, how would you kind of help them differentiate between what is actually research and what's actually building a product? So I, I, on one hand, uh, just having some industry experience helps. Uh, so for example, when we have new PhDs who are in our team now, uh, what we talk about is the concept of minimum viable product as it applies to biotech. And specifically in our space, we try to analyze it from like, uh, what makes a diagnostic commercially valuable, what is an unmet need, uh, and how do we make a product that hits that unmet need and meets these commercial criteria. Uh, so for example, uh, one of the main things that we aim for long-term is the product has to have some kind of analytical and clinical validity. It has to be useful clinically, and there has to be some health economics and outcomes uh, research done on this. Now that's long-term, and we know it takes a very long time to build it. So we kind of scale back that five-year, 10-year time, uh, 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 that map, and then we look at what we can do on year one to prove something is working well. And a lot of it comes down to figuring out some kind of unmet clinical need where the evidence can be generated very quickly on your product or platform, right? Um, so for us, uh, triple negative breast cancer again was that area uh, because we had built a team who uh, could uh, take primary tumors, isolate cells, uh, had imaging with drug dosing and 3D imaging uh, and uh, microfluidics. So basically, since we knew we had the team and the know-how to do something, uh, it was important for us to figure out the lowest hanging fruit within all the applications of our product uh, and then figure out what we can generate evidence on as quickly as possible. Um, and yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it also came down to doing things in parallel, right? Um, so obviously with something like uh, cancer, for example, you can't just aim to solve one cancer and actually solve it. It's not that simple. You have to try a lot of things. Uh, so one of the things that we've done is try to build a funnel or pipeline for everything that we did as early as possible that seemed reasonable. Uh, so for example, on our R&D side, we realized that you can't just bet everything on triple negative breast cancer and hope that it works out. So we just partnered with a, a bunch of biobanks to uh, test colon tumors, lung tumors, uh, pancreatic, kidney tumors, just getting all these different tumor types in ovarian cancer. And just seeing if what we think works on breast cancer could be translated even better to any of these other cancers, because if the breast cancer product fails, then the same technology can be with little effort translated to something else. Um, so I think building a pipeline when it comes to biotech is uh, important, uh, but having each part of your pipeline being the lowest hanging fruit for that kind of product development. So if it's on a per cancer basis, like for us, it was a matter of having the lowest hanging fruit. Uh, so for example, our first study with triple negative breast cancer was do dose elaborate because it was a single drug that could be used for uh, patients clinically and in a clinically valid way uh, without being used in combination. Uh, but now what we're doing uh, as the product develops further is we're testing combination drugs that are actually used clinically like ACT. So it's about, I think, having a pipeline but also having step-by-step -step ways of going from the lowest hanging fruit to the ideal product instead of trying to go all the way to the ideal product at the very start.
Um, and then on, on your journey, what would you say has been the hardest, especially at the earlier stages? What was the hardest thing you had to deal with um, when starting Pair Bio? And how has that changed over time as well? Yeah, so I think the hardest thing is definitely lack of money. Uh, <laughs> so uh, biotech is just expensive. I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's not software where you just need a laptop or two and a couple of people to do everything. It's, it's super capital uh, intensive. I mean, for the first several months of starting the company, we didn't actually have any lab space, which means all biology was theoretical, all chemistry was theoretical. Uh, so it relied purely on our experience. The only things that could be actually physically done was hardware and software, right? In terms of product development, uh, everything else was, uh, was theoretical until we had a lab space. Uh, and to get lab space, obviously we required money. So uh, I think capital is the, the thing that is the hardest roadblock at the start. And I would say it doesn't change that much over time because uh, I mean, if you, if you look at any successful biotech company, they raise tens, I mean, most likely hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Uh, to, to get to an exit. Uh, so money never really uh, stops becoming a priority. Uh, uh, but I guess over time, uh, whenever you develop platform product, I think figuring out what's the uh, kind of best place to put your product into is the big question. So in our case, we have a product that's applied to clinical scenarios. And obviously the more we get involved in clinical trials, the more specific the applications of the product become because clinical trials are generally not designed in a way that's very broad in terms of the patient population you address and the clinical scenarios you address. So, I mean, the conversations we have with investors are very different from the conversations we have with hospitals, right? Uh, or doctors where we run the clinical trial. Um, and knowing which shots to take and which shots to not take is very important because clinical trials are expensive. So if you can't afford to do more than one or two, you have to be very careful on which ones you decide to do. How do you go about making those really difficult decisions then? Um, I mean, a lot of it really just comes down to the science. Um, so for example, uh, we need to work with viable uh, cells, which means that certain tumors, it's very hard to get viable cells out of uh, when we get fresh tumor samples. And some samples are just a lot easier to work with. And so if we know that we have this high loss rate for a certain cancer type, then it's just easier to go with something that we don't have that problem for. Um, and obviously on the R&D side, we're always trying to do harder and harder cancers on certain things to see if we can actually generalize the product to those harder cancers. Um, so the easiest thing to do on R&D in, in the lab, uh, so it's an intersection of the easiest thing to do in the lab, meeting the easiest thing to prove clinically, right? And if those two things match, then that's where we go. You just touched on the importance of funding, obviously. Um, I suppose, could you give us a little bit of info on the uh, types of funding that you have received? Um, and at what point you kind of decided, look, I need to go out for, for VC funding, as opposed to maybe going out for grants or even angel investment? Yeah, uh, so I guess that changes for every company. Uh, I mean, at the start, grants are the best thing, but we have been notoriously bad at getting grants. So that's more on pair bio than it is on other companies. So I would say generally, if you can get grants, it's great because it's you know free-ish money with relatively few strings attached if it's a government grant. Um, but I mean, in our case, uh, we went uh, 
initially actually to try to get a pharma pilot and get some revenue through that. Obviously, it's not something that would sustain the business, but just enough money to do a little few, uh, you know, a few experiments. So that was our first step. Uh, I would not recommend that step if possible, because it is one of the harder ways to go about it. Uh, um, but if you manage to do it, then you can also use it as leverage to get investment. Um, and then in our case, uh, we did get VC funding and angel funding pretty concurrently. Um, I think if it's, if we're dealing with many uh, more academic founders, then accelerators might be a good way to go uh, because you can get you know, 100,000, 200,000 US dollars uh, to join a program for a few months. Uh, and that money can be used over maybe six months uh, to develop your prototype to a good enough uh, level for uh, investors to want to invest. Uh, and if it can be done concurrently, then that's great. I mean, certain accelerator programs, of course, are very good at making sure their founders also get funded at the end of the accelerator program. Uh, so those kinds of ways of getting funding with a very early idea can be very good and very bad at the same time. Very good because you can actually afford to do the things that you need to do because biotech is expensive, but only provided that you know what you're going to actually spend the money on and you don't you know, irresponsibly spend it. And in our case, we went for the VC money as soon as possible uh, because we're fairly capital expensive. What do you see the future for cancer patients being? I think, I mean, if we look historically, it's not like any one solution has ever worked for all cancers. And so I think we're in a phase where for the next 10 to 20 years, we're just going to have more and more products that enter the market. And it's just going to be a diverse array of diagnostics, precision medicine tools, uh, drugs, combination therapies that just crowd the market. And it's going to become a challenge to know what to use when but I think at some point there's going to be a consolidation phase uh, where we do figure out that certain patient groups or certain drugs are just working better uh, with all this kind of real world evidence coming up. Uh, but I think for the foreseeable future, we're just going to see this move towards more and more stratified medicine where every patient or every small group of patients is going to get something semi-custom for them uh, before it becomes more general again. Yeah. Cool. In that case, thank you so much, Dalik, for joining us today. Um, I do appreciate you taking the time and giving us your insights. Yeah, have a nice rest of your day, then. All right. Thank you very much. Bye.